The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And so uh, we, in a generous way, because we care about our lives, have been studying our hearts and minds. And interestingly, we can study our friends' hearts and minds too, right? We learn a lot about our mind by observing it indirectly, playing out in the people we're around, as well as looking directly, immediately in our own experience. I mean, it's different, but like the basic point is to become familiar with the causes for suffering and the causes for release, right? Isn't it true that we can see that in others? Oh yeah, there's this person relating in this way, planting seeds of suffering. We never want to be like overly confident that we are seeing everything, of course, but we do learn. It, this is actually spelled out in the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on mindfulness in the early Buddhism, where the Buddha, you know, when he, there's a refrain that gets repeated, I think 13 times in that talk or in that collection of teachings. And it always says, the refrain says, you know, you do this internally, you do this looking internally, externally, and internally and externally, right? Because we're interested in greed, anger, delusion, and how it's moving here and there and both. And non-greed, non-delusion, non-anger, how it's moving here and there, right? So that, it's like once we have a sense that these wholesome, unwholesome roots that we've really distilled both from getting some pointing out instructions from our teachers, the Buddha on down, and from studying our own heart and mind, our own experience, now we've really distilled what is ultimately the most important thing. How the heck do I end up all tight and burdened an entangled, a suffering mess. And how is it that this heart ends up, in moments at least, relatively, if not deeply free and light and responsive and happy? How is it that that happens? And because we've been interested out of compassion and we have somehow discovered the tool of this non-judging present moment awareness, we distill, right? We confirm what we learned, heard from the Buddha. There is greed, there is aversion, there is delusion, you can call it what you want, related tendencies of mind that are suffering and plant seeds of suffering. And there are other tendencies, non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. When they're in the mind, when they're operating shaping the mind, release. It's already a released state and it plants seeds for further releasing, letting go, and freedom. Well, really, um, like a, I, I like that image of being a naturalist, except instead of you know, observing the woods or the marsh or whatever, we're just observing the wilderness, the 
ecosystem of our heart, body, and mind. And we're really learning how it works, how this ecosystem of the body, mind, how I become a suffering human being, a miserable, unhappy, angry, irritable, needy, lustful, disconnected human being, you know, or some flavor of that. And how in other moments, I'm not that. I'm not that miserable person. The predominant quality in the mind and the heart is freedom or ease or love. You know, they're different expressions of freedom. Different moments. But the flavor is the same, you know. It's like suffering always, is there's a crunch, a contraction, a weight, and freedom there's always the absence of that weight, the absence of that contraction, the absence of that um, delusion or that disconnection, maybe. This is from Ajahn Sumedho, one of the senior Western Buddhist monks he ordained quite a while ago. I he's probably been a monk getting close to 50 years. He's in his late 80s now, I think, or mid-80s. The paradox of it all is that freedom to follow one's impulses and desires doesn't seem to really bring freedom. This is how I see it from my own experience in life. I found that while I thought I was free to follow my desires, I ended up feeling very confused and enslaved by desire. Right? From one of, I think, one of my uh, most favorite it's both an introductory book to Buddhism, but it, it just has so much wisdom in it. But it's his book called The Mind and the Way. If you're looking for a really thorough overview of the path that the Buddha laid out, you might consider taking a look at that book. And then a related quote from another one of my important teachers, this Burmese teacher, Saida Utejaniya. He's been sick lately with cancer, so he hasn't come to the West, so I haven't been able to sit with him for a while. But I've done a number of retreats with him. And he uh, said once, wisdom inclines toward the good, but is not attached to it. It shies away from what is not good, but has no aversion to it. This is an important instruction around observing the wholesome and unwholesome roots, right? Wisdom will naturally shy away from the unwholesome roots, and our job, right, because in a way we're aligning with mindfulness, with being aware, so our job is to recognize how the mind shies away from the unwholesome root. We don't actually have to be afraid of the unwholesome roots. We're just being aware. And in being aware, we see the natural way the mind abandons or moves away or shies away because the unwholesome roots, this is something for you to confirm in your own heart and when you watch your friends, but the unwholesome roots can't really hold together. They can't really continue to dominate the mind when they're being observed with mindful awareness. So when you're really familiar with the activity of lusting after something, you're really seeing it. You're not judging it. 
You're not trying to make it go away. You're just feeling and seeing it as a natural phenomena in your ecosystem. Greed, lust. It's when there's even feeble mindfulness, but for sure when there's strong mindfulness, it's so apparent that it's suffering. Right? The relationship between the craving, the desiring, and the tightness. I think it was Saida Upandita, somebody I've studied with, um, a Burmese, another Burmese teacher, who said lust, which is just strong desiring, right? Lust cracks the brain. And you can feel it sometimes, that sort of like that promise, if only I had this, right? And the mind, it's, it's its own kind of concentration. It's just not a skillful kind of concentration. And you really think, if only. But it's never that, you know, even if we were to get it, that, that, um, that crunch, it just persists. It's a, it's, it's kind, there's a kind of addictive quality to wanting. Another one of my really impactful teachers who I never met. I did talk to her once on the phone, but Joko Beck, this wonderful Zen teacher. I really recommend her books as well. Um, and in terms of aversion, you know, she uses that image of the icy couch as a sort of, especially the more subtle existential uneasiness, pain, chronic anxiety, the more persistent uh, undercurrents in our heart of dissatisfaction or uneasiness. We often aren't necessarily aware that that's there because we're on the surface doing this, doing that, getting excited about things. But it's interesting when we do settle down and the radio's not on and we're not in conversation <coughs> with another person, and there's nothing we need to do, right? Some people, I, I was reminded, because someone mentioned that this was true for them, but I remember in my early years of practice that first, those first few moments of waking up in the mor morning, you know, there's something blissful in being asleep, being disconnected, it's sort of the, the bliss of ignorance, like. And then when I would wake up, I would sort of remember, I would sort of like, put on the heavy backpack of being me and my life and all the shame or inadequacy or unfulfilled desires and hopes. But anyway, it was like this. Once I started to become more aware and then I got inspired to like really be mindful as soon as I wake up. And it was like this huge, it eventually got to this point for many, many mornings is like a huge wave of yuckiness. And I just learned to let it kind of come in without offering up any resistance. And I noticed that it went away, right? As opposed to like negotiating with it all morning long and then all afternoon long. Like, I, you know, I don't believe you. I'm not, as opposed to, well, 
I'm totally okay with that, whatever that is, letting it in, letting it have its effect, letting it have its say, do its dance on my heart. But in any case, uh, Joko Beck has this image of the icy couch, and I think she's really means by that that underbelly of existential uneasiness, or someone called it once an existential itch, something that feels here directly in our heart-mind, incomplete, unfinished, needing attention, something we got to do, but really don't know. No one told us what it is, but we know we got to do it, right? So it's, and it's, it's really um, deeply unsatisfying precisely because we keep approaching it, but we can never resolve it. And the problem is because we, we're misunderstanding, we're misperceiving what the problem is. Right? The problem is, is that whole construction that there's a person with a problem. Right? And so it keeps getting replicated over and over again. So this is her icy couch. And she talks a lot about, you know, cultivating a relationship with the icy couch, which of course is hard and cold, but turns out, you know, as she talks about it in this particular chapter, perfectly formed for your body. Now it's on our blog if you want to read the chapter, because we uh, scanned it and I used it for some talks, I think in January, it wasn't that long ago. And some of you might have read it. But anyway, uh, I think we put it on our blog or it's somewhere un under the resources that's on our website. If you have trouble, you can just contact Gabe. He'll give you the link for it if you're interested in reading the article. And in one of her books, too, she talks, she wrote, if we are living out of our strategy, our story, nothing seems to work because phenomenal life, by definition, is a promise that is never kept. So always our stories, our strategies are built on greed, anger, and delusion, right? <coughs> In a way, greed and aversion are the active hands of delusion. Because delusion is thinking that I have to do something to be happy. I got to get rid of the stuff I don't like that I find painful, and I got to somehow hold on and get the stuff I like. Now that just to us normally, that sounds like ordinary wisdom. Yeah, that's exactly what we're doing. But thinking that greed, the motivation of greed, the intention of greed, or the motivation of anger, aversion, fear, boredom, right? So there's a lot of diversity in both the greed and the aversion. We want to not just think of it in the more obvious expressions. Impatient, you know, would be a form of aversion. And always arises out of a sense of a somebody who's got that, un, uh, that underbelly of existential uneasiness, right? That, and the superficial conclusion my mind, our minds draw is that I have a problem that I can solve with greed or aversion. And isn't that, you know, when we look at any moment from today, right, isn't almost always the animating force in that moment, any moment of our life, 
a sense of a me that somehow we unquestioned, but somehow is apart from life, the world, nature. There's a me that I'm not, I don't know much, but I know I'm not perfect. I'm not fulfilled, right? That's generally our feeling that could be better, whatever this is. Whoever I am, whatever I am, could be better. And I've got these two, two, two tools, greed and aversion, to engage, to interact with my life, to experience the moment. And so that's what we do. So the delusion piece is the superficiality, the arrogant certainty that we already know what's going on here, that greed and aversion are functional, useful motivations in, in how I interact, engage the world, that they can lead to wholesome results. right? And then the greed and, and aversion you know, it's really just the active form of the delusion, of the initial misperception. It's inevitable when, from that superficial point of view, we take this sense of alienation to be me instead of a feeling being known. And whatever that story is, like, like Joko Beck says here, if we are living out of our strategy, story, nothing seems to work. Because phenomenal life, by definition, is a promise that's never kept. But the part of the story, you know, the trouble with a story, it's quite nimble. We can keep retelling it in different ways. And it never occurs to us to, in a sense, this isn't exactly right, but to step back and realize, like, to kind of question the whole picture, the whole thing. We never really question the sense of a me that has this uneasiness that's going to use greed and aversion to engage life. We never take a kind of a, an open and deeper look at our existential situation as a person, this subjective experience as a person. And so in that place, Jokobek writes, as long as we can be annoyed, you can bet something will arise to annoy us. And then another place she writes, life is a series of disappointments and it's wonderful just because it doesn't give us what we want. Because sometimes like in that deluded place, okay, here I am, not feeling perfectly free or content, so I'm going to use my tools of greed and aversion Sometimes we actually get some gratification or satisfaction from that. Temporary, but significant, right? It feels good. And, <coughs> you know, that's, it's kind of interesting, those who have dug into the tradition, there's some teachings on these realms of existence. And, you know, most of us who kind of have dug into the tradition realize it not to be dismissed as just something that is some, you know, mythologies coming from Asian culture. But instead, like, well, maybe they're really useful stories about hell realms and angelic realms. and Because the way they talk about it in the tradition is that 
beings that are in the really refined, beautiful, angelic, or celestial realms, they're not, they've got a problem, right? Because they've, they're getting like the gratification of being in a really nice place, some kind of heaven, they're, they can mistake this temporary gratification for something being resolved that's not actually resolved. I was telling somebody this the other day, you know, just as a metaphor, it's really kind of potent. Um, but, you know, these in these angelic, uh, more refined, divine, beautiful realms, that beings can live for a long time, long, 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 like incalculably long times. And when they appear in that realm, take birth in that realm, they immediately come into the full bloom of their youth, like a 19-year-old or something like that, right? And then they stay in that sort of perfect bloom in their refined way. You know, they don't, bodies of light or whatever, you know. But anyway, until, you know, for incalculable eons of time, but when that existence is over, they go from their beautiful 19-year-old bodies of light to old age and death very quickly. So it's like a real shock because it really seemed like it was going to go on forever. It really seemed perfect. And this is how it can seem to us too when we get a good job or we find somebody who actually loves us and we enjoy being around or you know, the cat behaves itself or whatever it might be where things are working pretty well we can mistake that, right? We can, in a sense, use that as a refuge, use our health, use our wealth, our privilege, or whatever as a refuge. We're imagining it to be something it's not, right? That, there, that the egoic sense of being apart, being separate, now has a refuge, so then it's okay, like, we stop being interested in what's really going on here. What is the cause of dukkha? What is the release of dukkha? Because there's enough gratification to delude the mind, to think that the work is done. There's no spiritual work. There's no question to be resolved, issue to be resolved. We might have David Loy give a talk in June. I don't know if people know him. He's a Buddhist teacher, not in early Buddhism lineage. I think he's in uh, Tibetan, maybe a Shambhala tradition, I forget. But anyway, he's written a number of books, including his most recent about eco-dharma. But some of his earlier books and articles were really looked at this pervasive sense of lack that we have in our mind. I don't know if anybody has read, if you just... Google David Loy and put the word lack, you might get some of his articles. And it's, uh, yeah, just that pervasive existential sense that something's missing. And then we look to fill that hole, that sense of lack, and we might get some temporary sense, like maybe if I have children, or maybe if I have a partner, or maybe if I have my own home, or maybe if I have the new iPhone, 
or whatever it might be, you know. And then there is a sense of being whole for a while, but then there's a betrayal because there isn't any conditioned thing that can fill the void in our heart, the sense of lack, because the sense of lack isn't really what we think it is. So that's why no conditioned experience, even the best, can resolve it because it isn't what we think it is. There really isn't this individual in the way we think there is who needs something in order to feel good. So that's why greed is inherently unsatisfactory. When has greed and acting out our greed ever delivered full and complete satisfaction? When has anger... See, then anger is the natural response because greed, which is just attachment to desire, because desire is just a normal part of the ecosystem. There's no living being without greed, right? The desire to eat or move or... These just come with being a living being. But with a mind like we have in language, we can start taking the greed to be something it's not. It's my greed. Right? We get attached to that natural movement of greed. And we have stories like Joe Quebec was talking about, entangling stories of greed, like the promise that's never kept. If only, then finally, once and for all, my problems will be over. That's the promise we make. Even silly things like, if only I can get to bed tonight, only this program ends and I can get home, then I'll be happy. Completely forgetting about Tuesday, you know, and all that we have to do. Or just if I could just get something to eat. <laughs> when who had just my partner uh, just had a half an hour to come home. She's production mode. She's a professor at McAllister and, and the spring dance concert's coming up so they're doing tech and she'll be home late like after 11 but she came home for a half an hour and we've been really trying to uh, cut you know to wean ourselves off of you know watching TV shows or movies and stuff <laughs> and she said I need something I mean she was partly kidding but she said in the half an hour she was home to get some food I need something to get me through tonight. I need to come home. And she's not coming home until late. I'll be in bed. You know, I need to watch a movie. And one of the deals is we don't watch movies unless the other person is there, you know. <laughs> Which, you know, we have different schedules, so it's not that often we can actually be together and indulge in entertainment. But just that sort of, because it's actually nice. This is why it's good to have Dharma friends where we can actually let the anger express itself because we see it more clearly when we kind of act it out, when we know that that's what we're doing. We're kind of putting words, body language to it. Then we see what it is. Oh, it's just that. It's just that thing. And you know, the Buddha, he tells us exactly what to do. I mean, everything is so systematized. So th there's a particular sutta 
you know, where the Buddha, it's the sutta related to uh, the hindrances, working with the hindrances, you know, but the Buddha is suggesting that we know when the hindrance is present, like greed or aversion, right? And we know the mind when it's absent. I mean, that's, that's a big ask. Do you know when greed is present? And are you aware when greed is not there, active in your mind? Same with aversion, same with delusion. I mean, that's we want to be motivated to be that intimate with our heart. So we go, oh yeah, this is a heart with greed. This is a heart with hate. This is a heart free of hate. This is a heart free of greed. I mean, and even that idea, the heart, the mind, free of greed, anger, and delusion, I don't know if you picked this up at the end of the guided meditation. I forget exactly how I said it, but just just the idea, just holding the idea like an, in an imaginative way of the mind, heart, free of greed, anger, delusion can actually be ev- evocative of that arising, the sense, the intuitive sense of that. And it's really good that we w- we get quite nimble and skillful at working both in the whole territory of seeing the hindrances, seeing the unwholesome roots, but just as nimble, just as interested in and skillful with, like really curious about a mind, this mind, this heart, free of greed, free of aversion. Because we only find what we look for. We don't find what we have no clue about or we have no sense of. No, no intuition. So we need, initially it may be just the pointing out from the Buddha, you know, like we have this instruction, non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. Now we want to actually act on it by reflecting, well, what is that? How do I know that this mind, this mind state, this heart-mind, isn't the mind that is free of greed, free of anger, free of delusion? What is it in terms of the activity of this mind and heart that tells me there is greed, anger, delusion? Right, that kind of interest. So you're really using the teachings, the words, to sort of frame how you look at your mind, your heart. And then when if you see greed, then you know, like, well, what's feeding it, what's starving it? When I look at what aspect of the present moment does the greed, does the anger get stronger? When I look at another aspect of the present moment, does the greed and anger get weaker, get undermined and abandoned? And even if we had no pointing out instruction, we would figure it out if we had that integrity of curiosity and in, and really working with our direct experience, immediate experience of the heart and mind. But we do have some pointing out instructions, right? Because we know, like the Buddha says, when greed is operating in the mind, we're pretty clear about that, then we can pretty much pinpoint, oh yeah, when I bring this up again, it triggers the greed. Like, if I want, if I'm lusting after popcorn, right, then it's that sort of smell and the buttery texture the salty, buttery texture and the crunch, right? So when I imagine, when I bring to mind, when I think about those particular aspects that the way my mind's conditioned, I find very pleasant, 
right? Then that keeps triggering, tripping the switch of the greed. So maybe it's better not to look at that. Maybe like in the dynamic of thinking about whether I'm going to have popcorn when I go home, I should bring to mind the bloated feeling at the end or having to wash the dishes. Another thing I don't like is the smell of oil, right? That sometimes lingers in the kitchen after work, right? So there's a lot I can pay attention or that some of my pants don't fit, you know? And like I spent money on pants and now I've got this section in my, in our closet, you know, that like someday, <laughs> don't want to give them away because someday I'm going to get my act together and I'm going to fit back into those pants when the basketball becomes a soccer ball. <laughs> so it's like when I pay attention to what aspect does the greed grow, when I pay attention to the another aspect does it shrink. Same with the anger. Anger really needs, it gets murderous, murderously sweet as it's sometimes translated as part of the Buddhist teachings. Right? It's really seductive and it depends. It's really impossible to be angry if we don't have a target. And sometimes we're, you know, with self-hatred, we're our own target. But there's somebody, right? There's some irritant and there's somebody to blame, ourselves or another person. So when we bring that person who's bad to mind, it reinforces the anger. When we bring their badness to mind, right, their evilness to mind. But like if I see the person who somehow I imagine is the cause of this pain to mind, but maybe I see something else, like how they're just like, Sometimes what's really good to see is, oh, so what would it be like to be them, right? And you realize, oh, they're a suffering being. They're probably suffering. Then it's harder to hate them, to make them a target, or that they can't do anything other than what they're doing. They're just acting out their own causes and conditions. Or having compassion for yourself or in a wider way, sensing how so many of us in any given moment are being pushed around by life. The 10,000 joys and sorrows, always uneasy with uncertainty. Because like I mentioned earlier in the guided set, you know, you can have aversion and loving kindness in the mind at the same time. And loving kindness, that general tone of the heart that can include the whole thing. That's what love is. It's that understanding that the only thing that makes sense is to include the whole moment, the, the totality of the whole moment, because anything else is stressful. So love is a very pragmatic wisdom that knows that inclusivity, including belonging, embracing, it's really the only thing that makes sense. It's just too much work to throw some part of life out of our mind. It's like those bumper stickers we see sometimes, you know, God bless America or things like that. You know, it's it doesn't really make sense when we say, you know, 
may all beings be at ease with these exceptions. You know, and then we'll name the people that somehow don't deserve to be happy, don't deserve to be at ease, don't deserve to be free. It just doesn't make sense when we're really honest and explicit about like that. The only thing that really makes sense is the totality, like, like it doesn't, like, we, may all of us in this room be free and at ease. May we all find the deepest happiness. You see, when, when we actually start to tap into that wish, it's really hard to stop it from, like, if a bus were driving by, like, oh, yeah, and you too. Like, that would be the natural thing, like, because that's what love does. It doesn't create boundaries. That's the very characteristic of love. And so it's really the antidote to aversion because aversion depends on boundaries. The evildoer out there and the victim here. And we realize that there aren't here and there. It's just this. Then anger falls apart. So we have these, you know, pointing out instructions about what we do you know, what, how we pay attention really matters. But like I said earlier, it doesn't really matter because we would just through trial and error, we would figure out like what feeds. And that's the image the Buddha uses in terms of talking about greed and aversion. What feeds it, causes it to get stronger, what weakens it. And you can think of that same with the wholesome roots. What, when I do it, feeds, strengthens these wholesome qualities of mind. What, when I do it, weakens these wholesome qualities of mind? And this is really the pragmatic aspect of Buddhism. I mean, it's really about how to participate skillfully in a conditional world, in a world that's lawful. And all we really have, right, because it's mostly determined, everything that's arising right now has been determined by everything that's past. Some of us have read uh, um, the book that Santi Caro translated that some of you read during the dependent origination class in the winter. And now we're starting to use it for the Sutta study groups here at the center under the Bodhi tree. Some of you maybe bought it. And uh, in early on in that book, he's translating Santi Caro, one of our teachers who visits once a year to teach, he translated his teacher's teachings on dependent co-arising. And uh, early on, Ajahn Buddhadasa, the, his teacher, his, this Thai Bu uh, Buddhist monk, is talking about like this real shift of how one might frame their life. And he gives three examples of how people tend to frame it. Like this is like this because God made it so. Or this is like this because nature made it so. So that's that deterministic like this, whatever this is, is entirely determined by past causes and conditions. That sounds a little Buddhisty, but it's not really, right? It's close, but there's something missing. And then the third option that Ajahn Buddhadasa is saying is wrong view, but common, is we think it's random. Like whatever this is, it's showing up to be like this for who knows what reason, random, who knows, can't be figured out. 
And the Buddha wanted to reject those three, not so much, I mean, maybe it's true that they're metaphysically just not true, but I think the way the Buddha might talk about it is we need to reject those three views, those three ways of framing your experience because they lead you to be unskillful. Because when we think God did it, right, it's like God's in charge. I don't really need to pay attention. I don't really need to study conditional, the conditional unfolding and learn how to be skillful because it's not up to me. It's up to God or it's up to nature, you know, the past or it's random, you see? So any of those three common views, we, these are views that we have and we don't even know we have. You know, we just think, oh, some higher powers making things the way that they are. And the Buddha wants us to reject those because it undermines this, what he calls the pentacle arising, which is, yeah, there is a lot that's determined, but there's one thing, one card that we get to play, which is how the mind is knowing this conditional dynamic we call me or my life or my experience. And that's what's really impactful, like in terms of working, in terms of developing the wholesome roots and undermining, starving the unwholesome roots. This is the thing. It's how and what we're paying attention to. That's all that matters. So, you know, this is a question we can ask ourselves. Okay, just ask, like, what, are, what is the mind knowing? What else might the mind be knowing in this moment? How is the mind knowing? Like, with what kind of attitude? With what kind of agenda or absence of agenda? Just wanting to be intimate, sort of a more pure agenda. Just wanting to see clearly. That agenda, we'll find, is really wholesome. Most other agendas, not so wholesome. Right? Just we're, we're allowed, the mind that knows, awareness, is allowed the desire to want to see things as they are, to want to be intimate. Because anything else, any other agenda with knowing would come out of the self-view. So then it's going to be tainted by greed because self is always going to go to greed and aversion. Because the self feels, because the self is a construction, it's inherently unstable. Right? It's something the mind constructed, this idea of a me living this life. And that sense of lack is there precisely because the sense of being the self is a construction. That instability itself is that feeling of lack that drives this arising sense toward greed and aversion. So when we're working these uh, last week now, um, really somehow tell yourself a story that's an inspirational story about how impactful how we're showing up is or how we're relating to the present moment. What we're paying attention to matters. How we're paying attention matters. Like, are we superficial? 
Are we paying attention as if it doesn't matter? Because that's like one of the deeper strands of delusion, paying attention as if it isn't impactful, as if it isn't going to deliver anything of value. Because isn't that true? Like we're so disrespectful of the value of being present. Why else would we spend most of the day in distraction? It's because if we thought like, I often give the example, like if there were you know, gold coins everywhere, we would be so vigilant looking for gold coins. You know, so if we really thought that being present would deliver what the heart truly seeks, we would be present all the time. We'd be mindfully aware. We'd be intimate. We'd never deviate from it. It sort of sounds good, hard work. And a lot of us, a lot of the time, what we're doing is this postponement thing. I, it, it, it is provocative. I kind of think the Buddha's probably right. But there's all this other interesting stuff I'm into. So, But I'm going to get to it. I'm going to dabble in it. But we really don't make it more important than what's going to happen in the Game of Thrones or you know whatever thing that we might be interested in. Who's going to win the game tonight? Yeah, maybe that's what people are doing tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Looks a little thin. I just realized there's a <laughs> final game. But who can afford the tickets? Yeah, but maybe I'll leave it here. <laughs> Before we run out of time. Because it would be nice to hear from a few of you. Just your own reflections share with the whole group before we end in just about eight minutes. So what have you been learning about the wholesome and unwholesome roots in your own practice these last few weeks? What questions about what I said tonight come to mind? I sent out some interesting articles about aversion and non-aversion. So in our small groups next week, we'll talk about that mostly probably. But anything goes tonight in this topic. What comes to mind? So my name is Paula. And um, I've really been making a point when I'm outside to come back to this topic and um, catching myself. And um, a little cold, excuse me. Um, I have found myself laughing out loud when I catch myself in anger and greed, like I'm on that story. And it's so refreshing to then, like, like not intentionally, but just to laugh. Like, I'm quite amused um, how quickly my brain is just like whoosh, whoosh, down there. Yeah. Um, and then just grateful that I can it bring levity to the moment um, or that my brain, somehow my heart brings levity to the moment because I just laugh. Um, but I have been wondering since the first week, thinking about all the times in my life when I have not been skillful. Um, and, and in those moments, sensing a real deep grief around those past choices um, and working to sit with that grief for as long as it needs to kind of when you talked about waking up in the morning and, and letting that mm -hmm. that stuff hit you and sort of you know I, I envision this practice I've done in the past with grief of letting it you know move through me and back into the earth um, but wondering if there's more specific instruction from the Buddha or from another teacher around what to do with past unskillfulness? No, it's a really important question. 
And uh, some of you know Joanna Macy, who's uh, sort of in our tradition. She's also a, a really been a powerful environmentalist for decades. She's an older woman now, and she's written a couple good books. The one thing she said that I think really relates to our own, you know, personal practice in our own heart and mind. But she's talking about she was a, you know, big anti-nuclear activist for many years, and. Uh, you know, this whole issue about where we bury the nuclear waste, it's still an issue, but it's just not at the top of our issues these days. And she thought, like, instead of, you know, finding some distant mountain in the middle of a desert where nobody goes and then burying it, you know, deep, deep into the earth, that we should build these beautiful temples where we put the plutonium, you know, in the nuclear waste, and we'd have a group of folks that would take care of the temple. And it would be like this beautiful, engaging temple of our human ignorance. Like what we're capable of. Why? So we don't forget it. And this is what we do with remorse. Because we all have, you know, we've all made mistakes. And, um, and, and as we become, as our practice builds momentum, we become more sensitive. We feel those that pain, the remorse, will come up. And we want it to come up, but we don't want to indulge in the story that I'm bad. But what we do, we want to build a beautiful temple like I am so happy that I know that that doesn't help. I'm so happy that that wound is there that as a beautiful temple now that's basically tell me, telling me don't go that way again. Don't do that again. That didn't help anybody. So that's how we use the pain of remorse is it is wisdom. It's like that's how the past becomes useful. It's telling us don't do that or do that. And but we have to we have to sort of construct that by seeing how unhelpful it is to just spin with guilt. Right? Who, ha who benefits from that? Nobody. Certainly not ourselves. And we're not fun to be around when we're in that story that I'm no good because I did X, Y, and Z. Yeah, thanks for sharing that, Paula. Time for one more comment or question. Hi, my name is, ooh, hello, my name is Enti. Um, I, practicing trying to view moments of aversion, I realize that I'm kind of constantly in it, like a thin layer of it. Um, specifically, when I wake up, there's like this subtle resistance to my existence, kind of, I guess. So um, this week I've been trying to practice like filling my own skin, which, I guess sounds kind of weird, but there's always this kind of like inside of me that just doesn't want to be in me. Um, so yeah, I've been practicing just like like letting it ooze yeah. out of me. So. <laughs> and isn't it beautiful that someone can say what Inti just said, and it makes perfect sense in this space, you know, to kind of like, and it's so cool that with interest and the stability of awareness, we can really see that more subtle stuff, like how 
the patterns that the mind and heart have fallen into. And that's the beginning of the healing, like when we can include that because it it's really impactful, the awareness, like the seeing of it and the creating space for it to be the way it is, then things actually begin to change. Not because we're trying to change it, but in a funny way, just by creating the space of recognition, that kind of honest recognition. Thanks so much for sharing with us. So let's take a moment and just let go of the words. Check the heart and the qualities that are alive. It's always useful, I find, to there's a useful way or a skillful way rather of using our imagination, but just to remember even before the time of the Buddha, but certainly from the Buddha on down a couple thousand, thousands of years or more now, one generation after another, people like us, wealthy and impoverished and well-educated and not well-educated, but people like us have bumped into these teachings, these practices, and in one way or another, one generation after another, these teachings have been passed down. And now we are the fortunate recipients of these streams of human wisdom, human understanding. It's our turn in our busy lives to do, to integrate and use these teachings and to basically model wisdom and compassion in the world, to model the capacity of being free. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.